joining us uh, through this uh, webinar type series. Uh, some of you may be uh, in real time. Some of you are probably listening this post the grand round. So I appreciate that you can log in and, and use this uh, venue to get your CME and also uh, MOC part two uh, sections. But very, very important. Make sure that you log in, answer your questions properly. And I want to thank the, the CME committee for uh, putting together a fantastic set of series for this year. Uh, today is going to be one of those that is going to be interesting and also very nice because we'll be out of, uh, out of the COVID topic era. Sometimes you get a little bit tired with all the COVID uh, issues, but uh, uh, we're doing well. We're moving forward. Uh, of course, uh, unfortunately, Connecticut is beginning to see an increase in, in COVID-19 cases. Uh, Dr. Shriver just sent me an email, 569 new cases yesterday in Connecticut, 13 new hospitalizations. So the reason I mentioned that is for you to remain vigilant, wear your mask, be careful, uh, don't lower your guard. And I think if you do that, we'll be able to get back, back on track. Uh, today we have uh, one of our fantastic speakers, uh, Dr. Carlos Medina, uh, who, who will speak on a very interesting topic. The title is fantastic, and I, I love the title, Enuresis and Other PP Problems. I, I just you know, think that, that could not be more pediatric uh, grounded. Uh, but I'm going to ask uh, uh, Dr. Fink to introduce him. Just before she does that, I, it, it, Dr. Medina has asked that we pause between each of the topics that he has uh, to ask the question. So we don't wait till the end. So he'll tell us, he'll have a slide for questions. Uh, I'll be moderating the questions in the background. Uh, so when you hear that, please, this is a time when you want to type in your question regarding that specific topic. Uh, if there are no questions, we will move on to the next topic. Uh, so Chris, if you can uh, go ahead and introduce Carlos, I'd greatly appreciate it. Good morning, everybody. I don't know, can you guys hear me? Yeah. Good morning. Thank you very much for joining today. And it gives me great pleasure to introduce Dr. Medina uh, for this morning's Grand Rounds. I know his topic, enuresis and other PP problems, is very relevant because we do see a lot of patients um, that are suffering from this. And his ability to not only take care of the patients, um, but to have a team that's dedicated to exploring these problems is fantastic. What I wanted to share is that uh, Carlos uh, got his um, BA at Columbia University underwent um, getting his MD degree at Cornell, then was uh, actually here in Connecticut at the University of Connecticut Urology program where he did his residency. He ended up having to take a small uh, brief respite uh, to uh, join the Navy, um, but then came back and did his pediatric urology fellowship at San Diego and then finished up his residency. We did, we were able to be lucky enough in 2017 to steal him uh, from Cornell and New York Presbyterian Hospital where he was an assistant professor of urology. And since 2017, I think what I would really like to share with the community here is, is that he has been tireless in working with me in his efforts to not only grow his division of pediatric urology, but also to optimize the care that we are delivering to the kids in Connecticut. Currently right now, we are working on strategies to help uh, regionalize some of the care from, from urology, um, but I've been um, very, very blessed and honored to work with him um, in his tireless, tireless uh, mission to um, treat our children. Without, mu without much more to say, I would like to turn it over to Dr. Medina and thank him for everything he's done in growing the Department of uh, Urology. Carlos? Oh. Okay, hi, hi everyone. Well, first I'm, I am so uh, privileged and honored to uh, be here uh, delivering this uh, grand rounds. Can we move to the next slide? So, um, enuresis and uh, other PP problems, okay? Uh, and I'll, I'm gonna give you a brief introduction into why um, I selected that title. Next slide. 
So the term PP doctor was a term that um, my son, I heard him saying once, he was probably about six years old and he was talking to a friend and he told him, yeah, my father's a PP doctor. So then um, I kind of, I'm, I'm not sure where he got it from, but that was the first time that I kind of thought about, about myself as being a PP doctor. Um, it also represents the first time that I know of that I embarrassed my son. I emphasize that I know of because, you know, of course, uh, it could have been many times before that. Um, but we were, uh, when I was at uh, Cornell, my kids used to go to literally to school across the street, and um, I was attending one of their functions once. And because a lot of doctors went there, it was not uncommon to see a guy in scrubs and a, a white coat. Um, and I was indeed dressed in scrubs and a white coat. And I had one of the kids ask me, uh, hey, what, what are you, what kind of doctor are you? And of course I said, I'm a pee, pee doctor. When I said that, my son's face went into his hand. And um, a couple minutes later, he, he took me aside for a, uh, what ostensibly was a counseling session. And he looked at me and he said, why didn't you say you're a urologist? So ever since then, um, you know, I've carried that label PP doctor with me. It's a, uh, you know, within my family. And um, I also know uh, that, that a lot of you will uh, know that there are uh, PP problems and uh, we're gonna talk about some of those today. Um, next uh, slide. So these are the ground rules of, uh, uh, for the presentation in the era of COVID. Um, previously, uh, I've tried to always to give uh, uh, presentations with a live audience, and sometimes I think I should have been an entertainer because I really thrive on the uh, instantaneous feedback I get from the live audience. Um, that is not possible nowadays because I'm doing this Zoom and I'm not actually uh, seeing people out looking at me and I don't know what your facial expressions are and I don't see people raising their hands. So. Um, what we're gonna do is uh, instead of holding the questions till the end, um, next slide. Next slide. You're gonna get a slide like this. It'll say questions. And what I would appreciate is as I'm speaking, if you have questions, just start letting them pour in on each topic, okay? Um, each, there'll be an underlying topic under each slide. Um, for example, one will say frequency, one will say dysuria, one will say neuresis, et cetera, okay? And any questions that you have on any of those topics, please feel free to um, write them in. And when we stop, we'll stop and talk. I, I absolutely positively need your feedback. Um, and that gives me a, a, a means of being able to gauge what, we, what details we really wanna flesh out, et cetera. Um, in terms of the last question slide, which will be at the end of the presentation, then I'd like to open that up to any urologic question that you might have, or uh, you know, I'd be uh, happy to answer whether it's about circumcisions or urinary tract infections. Okay, so um, don't be shy. Please ask your questions. I rely on them. All right, uh, next slide. So I have no conflicts to report. Next slide. So the overall objective today is gonna to be to provide the primary care physicians and mid-level providers uh, who are listening to this with uh, knowledge uh, of common urinary issues and some practical, practical advice in dealing with these issues. Next slide. The topics we're gonna to be covering are urinary frequency slash urgency, excuse me, and dysuria. 
urinary incontinence, which I will distinguish as daytime, and nocturnal enuresis. Next slide. So what is urinary frequency? Urinary frequency is the need to go to the bathroom more often than normal given the, uh, uh, the child's age and health. Next slide. So generally we see urinary frequency in kids who are between four and eight years old who are already uh, toilet trained. Um, typically we think of it as a, a sensory type of urgency. In other words, that the kid uh, feels a need to go to the bathroom um, even though sometimes there is no uh, true physical need. It's not like their bladder is super full or anything like that. Next slide. These children can be used in the bathroom uh, as often as every uh, 10 to 30 minutes, um, 30, 40 times a day. They're only getting rid of small amounts of uh, urine. And uh, one of the distinguishing features is sometimes at nighttime when you ask them, are you able to sleep through the night without uh, waking to use the bathroom, they won't be able to do that. Okay, um, underlying physical abnormalities are actually pretty rare in this group. Next slide. Causes. Frequency can be a symptom of a urinary tract infection. It can be also be the sign of an overactive bladder. Um, and I'm gonna get back to this a little bit later. Uh, children with overactive bladders need to go to the bathroom frequently because their bladders are overly sensitive to the presence of urine um, and it tries to empty more often than needed. Um, so at this point, let me take a, a moment and describe uh, the infantile voiding pattern. So basically in the infants, they have not developed the ability to hold their urine. So um, one of the things that happens uh, is that the bladder has stretch receptors and these stretch receptors are what tells the, uh, the, the brain, hey, I, I, I gotta go to the bathroom. Um, so what happens in kids is they develop what's called reflexive voiding or in, I'm sorry, in babies, uh, pre-potty training, they have reflexive voiding. In other words, their bladders fill to a certain point, the stretch, stretch receptors goes off and there's a reflex arc that um, tells the bladder to go ahead and contract. And when and the bladder contracts, sometimes in a discoordinated fashion, um, and I'll talk a little bit about that in a second, um, you know, the bladders will empty. And that's kind of how babies pee. Um, in uh, the, the continence mechanism, though developed over time, and it requires some uh, neurologic maturity as well. So basically, when we have the continence mechanism, what we're talking about is kind of a smooth muscle. The, the bladder I think of as a muscle bag or a, a balloon with muscle fibers in it, okay? And then the bottom is the, uh, is the bladder neck, and that is holding tight, and that's what's holding all the urine. So what happens is, Upon being released voluntarily, what should happen is um, when you get that uh, neurologic, neurologic discharge, you should get the bladder contracting and the bladder neck relaxing, and that's supposed to let all the urine out. That's called coordinated, uh, coordinated voiding, okay? Um, and it's actually quite a complex mechanism. Um, it runs with the, with the parasympathetics and sympathetics. Um, there it's controlled by the, uh, by the Pontine Micturition Center. And, um, and there is a combination of voluntary and involuntary uh, uh, actions that are going on. Next slide. So the evaluation. 
at the first visit, uh, usually um, when I see these patients, um, I, will, uh, I will just check a, a urine analysis to make sure that there is uh, nothing going on. If the UA is consistent with a possible urinary tract infection, um, then I send for a uh, then I send for culture. Excuse me a second. If it looks my computer on my end is uh, sending me stuff. All right, I'm sorry about that. So um, you know, and uh, should I get a, a renal ultrasound? Uh, next slide. So I usually don't get a renal ultrasound um, at that first visit. Um, you know, the, the first part of the evaluation is going to be, you know, actually taking a good history and making sure that there is nothing other obvious conditions that are going on. Next slide. So in uh, this, uh, in this uh, group, Usually, um, almost always, it's what we call idiopathic benign urinary frequency. Um, the International Children's Continent Society, the ICCS, um, which I will mention a little bit later, um, calls this secondary uh, uh, enuresis. Um, uh, however, uh, you know, uh, within uh, the uh, uh, Society of Pediatric Urology, it is termed idiopathic benign urinary frequency. It is by and large, what we see, um, and with time and patience, it usually goes away on its own. I usually give this about two to three months to resolve before I be begin any further evaluation like, um, you know, any other x-rays or uh, Euroflows or anything like that. Next slide. Overactive bladder. Children with overactive bladders have a need to urinate more um, because sometimes their uh, bladder muscles have, are, are having uncontrollable spasms. The muscles surrounding the urethra can also be affected. These muscles are meant to prevent urine from leaving uh, the body, but sometimes they can be overridden if the bladder undergoes a strong contact, contraction. Excuse me one second. Um, and in these cases, uh, when, you, when, you have, uh, when you have this going on, usually um, I would say uh, refer to a urologist as they may, may need a, a greater evaluation than you're capable of doing in your office, such as Euroflow EMGs and, uh, and bladder scanning, et cetera. Next slide. Questions. Okay, hi, uh, can everyone hear me? So if you have any questions, this would be the time for uh, questions uh, to Dr. Medina. All right, I don't see any open questions, Juan. Uh, why don't we give another couple seconds and then we'll move on. Um, here's a question from Dr. Cohen, any use for py uh, pyridium for, for, the, uh, uh, for frequency, I guess? Um, so, uh, you know, as long as you're so pyridium is, is pyridium and uh, and uh, uh, indigo carmine and other uh, you know bladder um, you know uh, coating types because the way pyridium works it coats the bladder um, sometimes can be effective um, you know I think you have to warn them that the uh, urine is going to turn color it's going to be orange um, 
you know, the, uh, the, but it, I, I have not found it in my practice to be helpful when you're talking about, you know, uh, urinary frequency in a child, especially the benign uh, type of urinary frequency. Um, the, uh, and sometimes it, it scares them when they see the urine coming out a different color. Um, so, uh, you know, I have found it more helpful when you're, when you have a, uh, a documented urinary tract infection to give peridium, um, but not in these cases. Another question from uh, Diane Powers. What do you suggest that we use as primary care providers uh, for families to try at home prior to a referral to urology? So that's a great question. And, um, you know, because I, I, I see as a urologist, I see a great uh, uh, difference in, in some patients. Some patients, I will see them the second that the, because typically I will see a urinalysis that is collected from the uh, pediatrician already. So most of the time I don't have to collect a urinalysis because I have a documentation of one anyway. Um, and um, sometimes I'll see uh, kids that are having urinary frequency uh, within the week and sometimes within a uh, couple of, uh, of months. So um, generally, if you're not dealing with urinary tract infection, neurologic abnormalities or anything like that, um, my, uh, the best thing you can do for these children is uh, reassurance. Um, you know, and, and trying to get them through. I, I, I've seen kids with, uh, with this problem where it la can last uh, up to several months, um, and then usually it'll just go away. Um, there is a lot of anxiety that goes with this. There's a lot of, you know, the, the, the parents, and there's like a, a, an anxiety feedback loop sometimes with the parents that are extremely concerned about their children. Um, and um, I resist the, uh, the, the urge to uh, obtain a lot of, uh, of studies on, on these patients um, because uh, sometimes it leads you down a rabbit hole of a situation where you probably, if you just reassured them to begin with. Um, I do admit sometimes it's difficult to keep from getting a study because sometimes the parents will push you into something. Another question is, uh, clinically, how do you differentiate be between overactive bladder versus urethral uh, urethral stricture versus increased sensory perception for needing to void. So um, you know that's where uh, that's where the uh, the history comes into play. Um, so uh, you know I think that what what typically happens is that first encounter where a parent tells me about uh, urinary frequency. Um, at that first encounter, typically, I will, uh, you know, I, if if I don't see if I don't see any urinary tract infection, there's no neurologic abnormalities, there's no uh, palo nephritis, no fevers, nothing like that, and all we're talking about is um, urinary frequency. Typically, I will um, I will uh, do reassurance. And then it's only at that, you know, two to three months without, uh, without uh, this relentless problem of urinary frequency that I will begin to think, well, maybe um, they have an overactive bladder. And at this point in time, usually I'll get an ultrasound and usually I will get a, um, a Euroflow EMG. And that's where we start looking for strictures that may not be visible on the outside of the body or any abnormalities of bladder, bladder wall thickening, um, hydronephrosis or anything like that. Um, so I guess the last question is, um, it, you know, over, is overactive bladder, it, it, how do you differentiate it between it, with, in it, with enuresis in the older kid, you know, seven or eight year old, 
Um, is, is there is there is the timeliness of, of the occurrence uh, strictly related to the diagnosis, or how do you differentiate that? So it's a question that sometimes I get. So um, basically, uh, so if you're you know if you're dealing with a uh, uh, and, and a lot of times we are we're dealing with seven or eight year olds. Um, you know, there, there is a uh, whole host of uh, uh, things that you can do. For example, um, you can, uh, you know, within the, the history, you can ask them if they're avid video game players. So, for example, and this is something that I've noticed over the years, um, you know, kids that are holding their urine for long periods of time and then their bladder start to um, rebel, for lack of a better term, and uh, and they might get some uh, they might get some bladder spasms, you know. In these kids, it's it's always helpful to uh, have a, a uroflow and a postvoid residual, um, you know. And uh, these are things that uh, if you don't have the capability of doing in your office, you can just send them over to um, urology. I, I don't know if I answered your question, Juan. Yeah, no, I think so. And, and, and sort of a related question, then we'll move on to your next topic. Is in the in the uh, in the in the COVID era with all the stress that we have, have you, have you received calls from uh, pediatricians or from patients uh, or, or moms uh, indicating that their, you know, their, their uh, elementary and middle school kids are, are having a, um, more frequent urination as a result of stress? I think they call it a, a polycuria, I believe that's the name that's right, used. Right, right. Well, I, I, I love that term, polycuria. Um, you know, and uh, the uh, it, it's it's something that you know usually you'll see in the uh, in, on the board exams and, and no and no place else. But um, so anecdotally, I can tell you, I have not noted any increase in uh, in these uh, uh, complaints. And um, when you look at if you look at any review on uh, urinary frequency and overactive bladder. Um, you know, and I kind of am dividing these. And, and remember, all, some of these divisions are, are artificial as a lot of these things are actually interlocked. But urinary frequency I'm turning as that patient who develops, uh, you know, all of a sudden they're going to the bathroom every couple of minutes and they're, they're bugging their parents. And then, you know, three, four weeks later it goes away versus the one who has sustained uh, a problem with overactive bladder and they can't hold enough, uh, they can't hold a lot of urine. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and sometimes will require some, uh, you know, medical treatments, you know, and there's a whole host of other things like uh, detrusive sphincter dyssynergia, which is discoordinated uh, 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 bladder uh, or voiding. Um, and uh, these things um, all need to be teased out because the treatments are different. So for some people, you give a bladder neck relaxant like Flomax. For some people, you need to give a bladder relaxant like, uh, like an anticholinergic or an antimuscarinic, um, you know, uh, in, in order to relax the bladder. So, um, you know, I, I usually will say that, you know, uh, I've not seen an increase in these. Sorry, I got kind of went astray. You know, if you if you want to hear somebody talk, just ask a surgeon for their opinion on something. Um, anyway, do you want to move on to the next uh, section? Dysuria. So um, dysuria describes dysuria describes a, a situation of pain or burning that's associated with uh, with urination. Next slide. This subject becomes a little bit uh, more tricky, um, especially given the limitation in communication. 
Next slide. In young children, sometimes parents report that um, the dysuria, they report dysuria because the uh, patient is crying uh, while, and they have a, a wet diaper or they're crying while they're urinating. Um, you know, and in these patients, the chief complaint of dysuria is not as specific and, and could definitely um, uh, uh, may reflect other sources of discomfort. Um, you know, uh, it was not, I, a couple days ago, actually, I got a, uh, I got a uh, one call from, uh, from a, one of our local uh, emergency rooms. Um, and the doctor told me that, or the ED doctor told me that a 17-month-old was complaining of uh, dysuria. And, um, you know, I, I, I thought to myself, boy, you know, um, I don't know how a 17-month-old has the uh, uh, maturity of thought and communication skills to complain of dysuria, um, you know, and frequently, uh, you know, that it's hard enough in adults, you know, who um, to presumably have well-developed skills to ask them uh, to describe their pain. With children, it's, uh, it, it can be uh, nearly impossible. Next slide. So um, the other thing is, you know, and like I said, with the communication problems is uh, children sometimes get confused, um, you know, as to what they're, uh, what they're feeling and what their uh, uh, symptoms are related to. Sometimes you can have a kid with diaper rash that gets urine on, the, uh, di on, their, uh, on their diaper rash. Um, and because it's uh, inflamed, remember, urine has salt in it, and urine is also can be caustic. Um, for example, after meals, it's usually uh, very basic, and it can be acidic as well. So, um, you know, urine hitting, just urine on the skin can be a big irritant. Um, and then the uh, salt in an inflamed situation can definitely hurt. And it, you know, and I see it all the time where the kid will pee, They'll have, you know, they pee on the irritation and it hurts and the parents will think there is something, you know, going on deeper inside. Next slide. People or kids who have experienced uh, sexual abuse may present with a complaint of dysuria, um, you know, and it doesn't have any uh, physical basis. They, uh, they may uh, exhibit those behaviors that uh, appear to be like a uh, like a, a pain um, that's related to other types of uh, genital pain. Next slide. Causes. Next slide. So um, dysuria can be caused by a wide range of infectious and, and non-infectious causes. Um, usually it stems from uh, one of several uh, common disorders of childhood and adolescence. Um, most kids uh, who present with dysuria as a chief complaint will have uh, something else uh, going on as well. Um, although patients with uh, urethritis secondary systemic, systemic illnesses may have dysuria um, as one of the symptoms, uh, this specific uh, complaint is only occasionally the principal reason for seeking care. So, you know, somebody who comes in with a, uh, with a big fever may tell you as part of the history that you're obtaining for the fever that they also have uh, uh, pain when they urinate. Next slide. So, um, I, I put this, uh, this uh, uh, table in here. Um, and I got it from an easy source. I think this is uh, up to date. Um, 
And uh, these are some of the uh, systemic uh, illnesses um, that are listed. Uh, these are uh, systemic illnesses. Some of these are relatively rare. Um, sorry, guys, my calendar keeps popping up and going right in the middle of my, uh, I don't know how to stop that. Um, the, uh, uh, you know, the Bichette syndrome, uh, you know, I don't think I've ever seen that in my entire career. Um, arthritis, varicella, maybe some of you have. Uh, you know, when there are infections, um, both common in, in uh, children and in adolescents, um, palynephritis, cystitis, a little less common is uh, pelvic inflammatory disease. Uh, sometimes uh, you'll see uh, genital uh, herpes. Um, genital herpes in infants is often, or, or really young children, is often the result of uh, auto inoculation where they might you know, they might have an ulcer on their mouth and then they uh, touch their uh, genitals and, and they kind of, kind of inoculate themselves. Um, you know, which is uh, interesting for me because when I first started practice, almost always we uh, thought herpes was a sign of uh, sexual abuse. Um, other genital conditions can be, uh, you know, nonspecific uh, urethritis. Um, there is a uh, condition in urology called interstitial cystitis, which is inf inflammation of the uh, urothelium. Um, it's associated with a lot of different, uh, uh, a lot of different causes, um, and we're not we're not sure what the specifics, uh, the specific cause of interstitial cystitis. But uh, some people feel that it is much more common than we give it credit for, and that it starts much younger than we previously thought. Um, Urethral strictures, these are relatively uncommon in kids that don't have any trauma history or any history of any other uh, congenital uh, abnormalities. Labial adhesions, these are common. Um, if there's time at the end, I'll give you my take on uh, labial adhesions, uh, being a, a West Coast trained pediatric urologist. Um, Lichen sclerosis. Um, I've seen this once in my entire career on a, on a little girl and that's something more specific uh, in, uh, in, as, as you grow older. Um, or lichen sclerosis of the, of the perineum and genitalia. Um, local trauma. Uh, I always tell girls um, and boys that, uh, you know, uh, I've had uh, kids as young as three and four years old who were masturbating and their parents were concerned about it, um, concerned enough to come see me. Um, and uh, sometimes they, they hurt themselves with their, you know, with the uh, vigorous nature of, uh, of their masturbation. Um, diaper uh, rash, again, very common. I see that all the time. Um, I'll have a, a little girl come in uh, with a complaint of uh, dysuria. Everything has been negative. And then when I look into her uh, diaper, um, you'll see a, a, a deep uh, diaper rash. Um, other things like uh, urinary stones, um, psychogenic urethritis. Uh, I hate to call anything psychogenic, uh, but um, there is a big interplay between the brain and the bladder. Um, sexual abuse, we've mentioned that already a couple times. Chemical irritation, like uh, here we're talking about different soaps. Um, you know, I've had some parents tell me, uh, swear to me that when their child uh, goes into a chlorine pool that um, they will get, uh, they will get uh, dysuria, um, but when they swim at the beach or in a brine pool that they're fine. Um, 
you know, what I always tell people is, um, you know, I, I, I never try to dissuade anybody from that. So I always tell people that when that happens that, you know, hey, you know, if your child can't swim in a chlorine pool without getting uh, urethritis, then, you know, don't let them swim in a uh, chlorine pool. Um, and then there's other things like, you know, pinworms and other types of parasitic infections that can cause, um, that can cause this. Next slide. So the evaluation, next slide. The first step, and this is going to be a common theme, you know, I, I, I talk about history and the evaluation of all these things um, quite a bit because it's probably the most important thing. Um, next slide. The next most important thing is history. Next slide. And history. Usually I control, <laughs> I control the slide and I tick through these uh, pretty quick. Um, so um, hopefully it caused somebody to chuckle. Um, anyway, next slide. So um, the diagnostic modalities um, are guided by the history. So, um, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, in the absence of anything else and um, this, the, <clears throat> the, uh, the uh, dysuria and the dysuria evaluation should only start with a urine analysis. Next slide. No, sorry, uh, no questions just yet. So, um, Sorry about that. I, I'm usually when I'm giving a presentation, I have the slides on the side. I can I can sort of do in advance. Anyway, um, so uh, uh, gosh, I'm blanking out. You know what? Let's go to questions. So we, am I, am I on, Steve? All right. We have a number of questions already. The uh, we'll go from. The, the first one is, do any foods, additives, caffeine, et cetera, cause dysuria or concentrated urine from dehydration? So um, the answer is, it is, it is thought to. Um, you know, I, I'm not really sure, um, you know, of what the connection between caffeine is. And, and, and this is not, you know, I've not done any, you know, prospective randomized trials, I, I, you know, but I can tell you this that, you know, when I started practice, I used to make a big deal about telling people to avoid caffeine, irritants, spicy foods, um, you know, things like that, and uh, never had much of an impact. Um, the other thing uh, with regard to dehydration, so, um, yeah, so if you have, if you have a, uh, a urothelium, uh, you know, a, a, that, that is inflamed, or, um, you know, and you have really concentrated urine, that's going to be high salt urine, uh, and you're trying to pee, yeah, that can cause dysuria. I've also seen kids that hold their pee for long periods of time, and then it's coming out, it's like a fire hose coming out of there, and that can also cause dysuria as well. Next question. Next question is, uh, uh, it, it was in the... Um... In the table that it, it there's from one of the one of the attendees is what are the what are virginal vaginal ulcers? It was listed there in that table. So um, what they're referring to is uh, you know babies that they uh, look into, um, and uh, and and you will see that they have uh, little ulcerations um, that are not uh, not uh, related uh, to uh, you know any sexual activity or you know herpes or anything like that. Um, you know, uh, I, I don't run across that. Um, I didn't really comment on those because I, I you know, I, I, I don't see it very much. 
um, I thought the table would be uh, useful to include um, because it's uh, it's available and up to date, you know, and, and I think it's a it's a quick resource uh, that you can have. Next uh, question. Next question is for interstitial cystitis. What is the ideal treatment while awaiting scope? Uh, is medical workup indicated or is scope ultimate diagnostic, the ultimate diagnostic study? So um, <clears throat> interstitial cystitis is still a diagnosis of exclusion. So meaning that you have to take a very careful history and make sure you're not, you're not leaving anything else on the table. Um, you know, uh, the, uh, the, the, you know, pathognomonic thing that we always think of in urology is that you scope the patient, you fill their bladder um, under anesthesia, and then if you see little um, ulcerations after, um, after uh, you let their bladder drain, that that is the uh, pathognomonic sign of, um, of uh, interstitial cystitis. Um, in the end, interstitial cystitis is a breakdown of the urethelium um, and, uh, you know, so that urine being very caustic, if you don't have that, uh, that uh, mucosal layer that is lining the bladder to protect against the caustic effect of urine, um, that's where, where you will get interstitial cystitis. So I would say that is a, an extremely difficult diagnosis, even for um, urologists to make. Um, and generally, when I begin to suspect interstitial cystitis, I will get some of my female urology colleagues um, on board to, uh, to ask them uh, for their help and guidance in this. It's a, it's, a, it's a difficult diagnosis. We're making it younger and younger. Um, you know, and the treatments, uh, you know, are, are drugs like Almiron, which I think of as Pepto-Bismol for the bladder. In other words, they coat the bladder so that it avoids the, uh, uh, artificially coat the bladder so that you um, can avoid uh, the urine getting into the, uh, the, the deeper layers of the bladder and causing all kinds of hate and discontent. Next question. Last question for Mark Ramirez. Uh, in primary care settings, we see a lot of dysuria. What percentage ballpark of cases um, would, would you say are caused by viruses? Oh, that's a fantastic question. And the answer is I have no idea, but boy, do I do suspect it. I do suspect it. Um, you know, um, I, I, I've sent out uh, non-specific viral cultures for urine sometimes. I've never had one of these come back positive. I suspect that I'm misusing the test. Um, you know, I, I suspect that you, we have, I mean, there's so many, uh, there's so many, there's so much, uh, that goes on with viral illness and so many ways that it presents without us really knowing and, and, or, uh, viral illnesses that cause an autoimmune response. Um, you know, what we typically will see is signs of inflammation on the UA with a negative culture. So you won't see nitrites, but you'll see WBCs, you'll see hematuria. Um, and on those cases, I strongly suspect that a viral illness is at play. I know I didn't answer your question, but, but boy, that is an interesting topic to me. I think the answer is we don't know. That's what yes. I'm hearing. Um, yes. All right, you wanna move on to the next topic? Yep. Urinary incontinence, daytime. So I'm splitting up daytime and let's see, it's 8.42. So I'm gonna start going a little bit faster um, and, and hopefully get to nocturnal enuresis, which is what everybody really wants to, to hear about. Um, so urinary incontinence in the daytime. Next slide. Um, this is also where a lot of the previous topics uh, will often combine. Next slide. 
Um, daytime incontinence is a condition where the kid will pass their urine uh, during the daytime, uh, even uh, after they've been potty trained. Next slide. Daytime wetting affects approximately one in, one in 10 children who have already been potty trained. And 95% uh, of these kids are between five and 15. The 95% the number actually is between five and 12. Um, I extended it out another uh, two years because I've seen uh, 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 very few, but, but some kids in this older range. But um, the, epidemiologi the epidemiology of it is 95% of that one in 10 uh, kids are, are um, between five and 12. Next slide. Um, and these can uh, be caused by any of the following. The child might ignore their urge to uh, urinate. Uh, as a result, the bladder becomes too full and, and the child is, is leaking versus being incontinent. Um, the child might have an overactive bladder and they don't have, they haven't developed the uh, continence mechanism strong enough to, uh, so they can get to the toilet on time. Uh, the child might have an underactive bladder, so um, they just don't get the urge to use to the bathroom. And then you get back to, uh, to uh, the, the second thing there, which is um, they get some urine leakage. Next slide. The child may be suffering from dysfunctional elimination syndrome. Um, and this is where the bladder, bladder muscles and the nerves are not quite working together. Um, the muscles may tighten, uh, stopping the flow of urine right in the middle. And I've talked about that a little bit already in a distrusive sphincter dyssynergia. Some neurologic and developmental conditions can cause poor bladder control. So, um, you know, I'm thinking, you know, when a urologist thinks of these, we think of, uh, you know, um, some problems like, um, like uh, uh, some spinal defects or spinal cord injuries, um, but there are also brain conditions and neurologic conditions that can cause uh, problems uh, peeing. Um, the child is suffering from constipation, and I would say this is another very underdiagnosed thing that I see a lot of, and that is a child, you know, that when you ask them how often do you poop, and they'll say, you know, I poop uh, every couple of days, and then a lot of times it'll surprise the parents, okay, and then uh, usually I'll do a poop log so that the parents can have an idea of how often their child is actually pooping. Um, and finally, the kid might be suffering from a UTI. A lot of times you'll have kids that are, you know, dry as a desert, and then they get a UTI and all of a sudden they start wetting and that's their first sign that they're having a urinary tract infection. Next slide. So um, one of the things that we always get with incontinence is that the um, children are blamed by their parents that they're being lazy or that they're seeking attention. Um, this is very unusual. I always, always uh, uh, reinforce to the parents that the kid, um, it would be a really unusual kid that is using this as an attention-seeking type of behavior. Um, you know, most kids don't wanna be wet. They don't wanna be made fun of at school, et cetera. Um, next slide. Um, there are, you know, uh, signs and symptoms and behaviors that are associated with, uh, with incontinence. You know, I've already alluded to a few. Um, the kid that plays uh, video games, the kid that's outside playing doesn't want to come in to pee. Urinary urgency. Um, you know, sometimes uh, the kid might, uh, might really experience this really bad desire to go to the bathroom. Um, incomplete bladder emptying. This is the kid that goes to the bathroom, only wants to get a little bit out 
so that they're not feeling quite so full and then immediately back to what they were doing, uh, be it the video game or playing outside or whatever. Um, and then the uh, variety of different holding behaviors. Next slide. So again, history. History is very important. Um, you know, you also have to do a, a good physical exam. Um, I often have a urology residents that ask me, why am I looking in the mouth? Why am I looking in the ears? You know, I'm looking for periricular skin tags. I'm looking for signs of a strep throat. Post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis can cause uh, urinary frequency and, uh, and dysuria. Um, that's, you know, one example, uh, you know, in, within the uh, family history, is there any history of diabetes, um, either type, um, you know, in the family? Um, does the patient have uh, sugar in the urine? Um, you know, a lot of times I get patients who haven't had a urine analysis, and then um, I have diagnosed uh, at least two cases of diabetes in my career. Um, and I've also uh, diagnosed a, a young teenager with um, multiple sclerosis about twice. We've also seen uh, 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 spina bifida, uh, you know, not obvious spina bifida, but we've um, diagnosed that as well. Um, on physical exam, is there a big hard stool in the rectum? That in and of itself is not necessarily saying that there is constipation because the, uh, the rectum is supposed to collect the, uh, the poop. Um, is there any tenderness anywhere? Are there any anatomic anomalies? Next slide. So additional tests, x-rays of the abdomen, is it full of stool? Is there a normal spine and sacrum? Uh, you know, I, I actually uh, saw a uh, abdominal x-ray on a patient where they didn't have a sacrum and, um, you know, and, it, and nobody commented on this. Um, the uh, renal ultrasound also lets you uh, get a view of the kidneys and the bladder, um, the, the urine analysis, examination of the spine and, and, and the urethra are very, very important. Um, when I first got here, there was a girl who um, uh, uh, had uh, incontinence and she was already uh, nine years old. And um, somewhere along the line, it was, uh, you know, it didn't get put together that she had a duplex kidney and that her topic ureter was actually in her bladder neck. Um, and so what was happening is that um, she was having, you know, you didn't, they didn't think, or it wasn't thought that there was an anatomic condition um, because she had times where she was dry. Um, once we took care of that, uh, that ectopic ureter though, and she was completely dry. And this is a, a, a you know, just a, a very um, studious application of sitting down with your radiology colleagues and trying to figure things out. Next slide. Um, and then, you know, I, I always tell people, you know, if, you've, if you have any other medical conditions that are involved and all of these have been ruled out, um, then bring them to me or send them to me. Uh, next slide. Questions? I have uh, one question and then in the interest of time, we'll move on to the next Absolutely. topic. Uh, uh, with respect to uh, daytime frequency and daytime incontinence, are there certain points in history that might, make, that might point to a diagnosis of posterior urethral valves? Do you make it a point to watch these children void? So um, I, 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 I watch them void, uh, but uh, usually it's, I, I, I do this through a Euroflow. The Euroflow is a very good tool. 
it gives you a lot of the same information that your dynamics can give you without any of the invasive quality of a um, your dynamics. Um, so uh, what the Euroflow does for me, it is establishes the flow. I then do an ultrasound, make sure they don't have a postoid residual. And I can see, because we put EMGs on both their pelvic floor muscles as well as their abdomen, and I can see is their abdomen tightening up while they're trying to pee versus, um, versus uh, 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 that they're trying to pee and they have a, a lot of activity in their pelvic floor muscles, which indicates like a, a dyssynergic voiding pattern. Um, so uh, I, I do sometimes physically watch a patient pee. Nowadays that everybody has access to all these uh, uh, cameras and stuff on their phones, um, it's much easier to, uh, to just uh, have, do a video and, and, and have them bring that in. Um, but, but the Euroflow is much uh, more useful than actually sitting and watching a person pee. Yeah, thanks. Let's move on to the last topic, Carlos. And I think yep. the, the, there's a question that will be, re will be uh, relevant to the last topic. Okay. All right, next. Okay, nocturnal enuresis or bedwetting. All right, uh, next slide. So nocturnal enuresis is the involuntary loss of urine that occurs uh, only at night. Um, I will refer to this sometimes synonymously as bedwetting, just so you understand. Um, and when I say bedwetting and nocturnal enuresis, I'm going to be referring to, um, to uh, primary nocturnal enuresis. Also know there's a conflict uh, between the Society of Pediatric Urology as well as the ICCS and, and, and what different terms are. Next slide. So according to the ICCS, children are not considered enuretic until age five. Nocturnal enuresis is involuntary loss of urine that occurs only at night. Uh, primary enuresis means the kid was never dry. Secondary enuresis means the kid was dry, had a dry period for at least six months. You know, this whole scheme um, doesn't uh, really matter in the end to me because you treat both the same way and they're both uh, have a similar uh, 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 success and treatment. Next slide. Uh, 15 to 30 percent of kids are usually still bedwetting by the age of five. Of these enuretics, the resolution rate is about 10 to 15 percent per year. By 12, 4 percent of boys are still wet and 2 to 3 percent of girls are still wet. Um, by 18, it's less than 1 percent. Um, and I have yet to see the 21-year-old with, um, with uh, bedwetting. Next slide. So genetic and familial factors, I always tell people, no, I don't know of any bedwetting gene. However, um, it is definitely uh, uh, inherited or, or there's definitely something going on um, because almost always one of the parents was, uh, had a nocturnal enuresis or you know, Uncle Willie or something. You know? So um, yeah, there, there, there is some type of inheritance pattern, but, um, but we don't have a gene. Physiologic factors. Um, you know, and uh, let's put uh, physiologic factors and vasopressin together. Um, so, uh, you know, it's thought that, you know, some kids that uh, might have a little hypoxia at night um, produce uh, uh, atrial uh, natriuretic peptide and produce a lot of urine. And some kids don't, uh, don't uh, release enough uh, vasopressin um, or um, antidiuretic uh, hormone. Um, and uh, they make a lot more urine at night. 
Um, this is not uh, well understood and uh, sleep disorders are, uh, are, are also uh, thought to, to be a potential cause. Next slide. So in the evaluation, you obviously, you know, the, the common theme here is history. History, history, history. You must rule out any other associated problems, daytime urinary issues, neurologic, psychological, constipation, et cetera. When you do your exam, make sure that there are no uh, spinal or sacral abnormalities. Um, they should have a normal gait, for example. Um, in diagnostics, you'll check a UA. If there's a UTI, you will treat it and see if it goes away. Um, next slide. All right, so, uh, you know, this is my version of bedwetting, okay? And uh, you should all understand that I am a urologic heretic when it comes to bedwetting. I don't think every 10-year-old uh, needs to be completely dry at night. Um, you know, and I, I, I look at this as a quality of life problem. Well, it is a quality of life problem. That doesn't mean it's not important. It means that we treat it based on the level of bother. And this is what I think is going on. All right, in the, in the great majority of cases, okay? Although I can't prove it, uh, you know, one of the things that happens is I already told you a little bit about the infantile voiding pattern. That is the bladder fills to a certain extent, then it contracts, releases urine. Um, what I think happens, and, and this is all going on in everybody uh, and all people who, um, who are capable of holding your urine, is that your bladder is constantly sending your brain signals. It's constantly telling the brain, hey, um, I have this much in my bladder, I have that much in my bladder, okay? And then the brain, the, the frontal cortex is making a decision. Well, listen, I'm stuck in traffic. Um, I'm, I'm listening to Medina's boring lecture. Um, you know, I cannot go to the bathroom right now, so you need to relax. This message goes through the pontine, excuse me, pontine micturition center and it causes the bladder to relax a little bit. At night, you should be able to roughly hold about two times the amount of urine that you can during the daytime comfortably. Um, so I think that what's happening is that these kids are falling into such a deep sleep that they are, and, I, and there is parent after parent that tells me this kid is dead to the world at night. So I think that what happens, um, to try to make a long story short, is that um, they, they, the, the brain, you know, the, the bladder will send a signal to the brain, and in the absence of instruction from that pontine micturition center, the bladder will just Fill and revert back to infantile voiding and empty. Fill and empty. Next slide. So I always make sure that there's nothing else going on. I ask them what they've already done. By the time kids have come to see me, almost always they have tried all the things like, you know, double voiding at night, nothing to drink after dinner, um, you know, nighttime wake ups. These are all commonly uh, common things. And I no longer, you know, I no longer start with that. Then I give them reassurance. I don't treat really young kids. I, I just don't think there's a uh, point to treating them. And this is the, the, three drug, the three drug plan according to me, okay? So the two drugs that you will all see come up um, is uh, DDAVP and amipramine. I'm gonna sidestep amipramine for a second. So I go with DDAVP, which is a start, okay, antidiuretic hormone. Um, they, and the, the, the basis of that is to try to lower the urine uh, production. Um, and then hopefully, so that before the bladder contracts, because it does nothing for the sleep, that they will be awake and they'll be able to pee um, before that happens. If I can't get there, and I usually give this about two weeks per dose, I usually start them about two tablets and go up to three, sometimes four, depending on how big the kid is. Um, then uh, 
If that doesn't work, and I've had about a 60% uh, 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 efficacy rate in that, remember, and that's defined by what the parents and the kid consider successful. Um, if that doesn't work, then I move on to, um, to starting them on ditropan in combination with this drug. And so what I'm trying to do here is get the bladder to relax, to hold more urine, and I have found this to be efficacious in about 80%, this drug combination. Imipramine is an antidepressant. Um, some urologists like to give it, and uh, you know it's controversial to give a kid at night ditropan. I don't understand this because one of the ways, one of the mechanisms, imipramine, the mechanism of imipramine and why it's successful in uh, nocturnal enuresis is not well understood. It's thought to be some type of anticholinergic uh, response, so why not start them on an anticholinergic? Also, uh, amipramine as an antidepressant has a whole host of other side effects that um, I find ditropan just doesn't have. And a short-acting ditropan at night, they usually wake up the morning and they're fine. So that is, uh, that is my quick uh, nocturnal enuresis. Next slide. Questions? Thank you, Carlos. Um, Was that quick enough, Juan? Uh, we have a question from, uh, what is your experience with bedwetting alarms? Oh, so I didn't mention them. I didn't mention them. I, I kind of never do. <clears throat> um, however, in the old days, I hated them because they were nowhere near as effective as when you look on the company data. Um, and they were really expensive and usually not covered by insurance. So, um, you know, I'm gonna, I didn't want to ask a parent to spend 1200 bucks on something that has a, a, a high failure rate. Nowadays, though, if they're interested in bedwetting alarms, it is the only thing that has shown to be a durable uh, 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 response. In other words, that you, you use it and it works, and then the kid doesn't, it's, a, it's probably the most uh, durable response. Um, however, uh, uh, the, I find that the success rate is nowhere near as high as you'll see advertised. Great. Um, I think that was the... Um... Uh, oh, there's one last question. Uh, how long will you continue medication, DDAVP? Three months, six months, uh, and then thanks again for a great presentation from Dr. Ramirez. Oh, well, usually, uh, well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Um, usually, I, you know, once I've reached max doses on my combination therapy, which usually takes, you know, I can, I can ramp that up over like a six to eight week period. If I've had no response at that point in time, I tell the parents, look, it ain't working. Maybe try again next year. I have had success giving the kids a break for like a year and then coming back. Um, but my role as I see it is I really try to get the anxiety level down. I really try to get the self-deprecation or the uh, self-esteem thing down and, um, and tell them, you know, this is actually quite normal. You know, some kids just aren't dry yet. We're not cavemen anymore. You know, the whole idea of holding your urine is, is, is new. It's a society driven thing. All right. Thank you, uh, uh, Carlos. And thank you everyone for, uh, for your participation. I think we had uh, over 120 people that joined. So that's a pretty good number to hear about PP pee -pee problems on a uh, Tuesday morning. So thank you very much. It was an outstanding presentation. Great participation. Uh, everyone stay safe and we'll see you again on Friday for the Ask the Expert, Expert session. And then we'll come back on Tuesday for another Grand Rounds. Be good. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.